Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. I just want to welcome you here. Uh, those of you who are worshiping with us online, well, we just so grateful that we're able to gather together in different venues and ways. Um, this sermon is the first sermon in a seven-week series that will bring us right up to Easter. And so this is the first sermon in the Easter sermon series where I'm going to be focusing on the resurrection. Now, before we jump into this sermon, I think as a church we really need to pray more because last night my daughter and I sat together and uh, followed us losing to the devil. A UVA lost to Duke, and um, that was heartbreaking. Amen. And so we need to pray more, cheer on Coach Bennett more, do whatever it takes. For those of you who are Duke fans, congratulations, and it was very difficult for me to say that. Now, speaking about challenging things to say, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to begin our sermon series, Moving into the Resurrection. Now, as I'm doing this, I'm well aware that this week is going to be extremely methodical and it's going to be foundational. Because whether you know this or not, as we explore the resurrection, that the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word gospel means good news, all four gospels move towards a primary event in the gospel, and then following the gospels, all the rest of the Newer Testament looks back at this event. So all four gospels find their apex, they find their crescendo in the resurrection. It's what it's all about. The gospels literally front load and move towards the resurrection, and then the rest of the Newer Testament looks back at the resurrection. The resurrection is the defining event of the Newer Testament and of the gospels, gospel meaning good news. So my intention is that we would methodically for the next several weeks move through the resurrection so that all of us understand what it is. Please know this at the outset. The resurrection is how through Jesus Christ, God brings a new kind of life into a world that has been held captive by death. I want to say that again. The resurrection is how through Jesus Christ, God brings a new kind of life into a world that is held hostage through death. In other words, if Jesus is raised from the dead, if the resurrection is true, then there is a death to life story and promise that is available to all of us. Now again, the Gospels all move towards the resurrection, and the rest of the Newer Testament looks back to the resurrection. If you were to look in the Newer Testament, you would find every single sermon that is preached 
In the Newer Testament, after Jesus ascends to heaven, every one of them focuses on and talks about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is absolutely key. Now, what I, my prayer is, though, is that the good news of the gospel, the resurrection, would be more than just news to you, that you would personalize it, that you would take a deep, honest look at what we're going to be talking about in this sermon series, and you would really personalize it and own it for yourself. Here's why. There's a lot of news out there. How many of you know that it's true? A lot of news. And I don't know if you've experienced what I have. Some of the news, it seems, is negative. It's difficult to process. There are times where I hear about things happening in our world, and I try to internalize it, but I just... But there are times where good news and even difficult news, I find myself internalizing it. Let me give you an example. How many of you are aware of what's going on in Texas? What's going on in Texas? That became very personalized to me. And the reason why it's personalized, there's a family that worshiped here at City Church for many years. The mom and the dad, Joe and Sarah Miracle, became great friends of mine. Now, they recently moved to Texas. And Sarah has been posting every day, personally from her own life, what it's like in the midst of what's going on in Texas. And two days ago, she posted, they now have to boil their water because so many pipes have burst that now they have to boil water to make sure it's clean. And I have to admit to you, knowing that it was so personal to Sarah and to Joe and to the Miracle family, somehow that gripped me. It wasn't just news. It was news that became personal. My prayer for you and for me is that the good news, the gospel, the central reality of who Jesus is would become something that you would consider personally and that you would take it into your heart. Now, when you think about resurrection in the Bible, the first forward mention of it is found in the story that we're going to look at this week and next week. This story is found in John 11, 1 through 3, and it has to do with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, in looking at the story, you will discover that it is sort of the story within the story of the Gospel of John. In the resurrection of Lazarus or the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we discover there are certain things that Jesus himself wants us to know. And so let's go ahead and read the story, and then we're going to step into it. And again, this sermon is going to be very methodical and very basic, but I want us to get it. So here's our story. It's found in John 11, 1 through 3. Here's our reading. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. One of the things we have to understand as we step into our story is how much the gospel of John has been trying to tell us that God loves you. 
In the Gospel of John, we discover that John is doing everything he can under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell you that God loves you. And here's what I've found. There are a lot of people who believe God loves people, but they're the exemption. That God loves the woman to your left, God loves the man to your right. But when it comes to you, somehow God is exempting himself from loving you. And the Gospel of John does everything possible to let you know that that's not true, that God loves you personally. For instance, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Later on in the Gospel of John, we discover that Jesus says this, no greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Actually, if you were to read beyond the story where we're going to read this morning, you would discover in John eleven thirty six that when Jesus shows up at Lazarus' tomb and he begins to weep, it says, then the Jews said of Jesus, see how he loved him. Jesus loved Lazarus. Lazarus's sisters come to Jesus and they know they're gonna get him to make a move and they're gonna get him to make a move by saying, Jesus, guess what? Lazarus, you love him, do something. So John's letting us know about the love of God. The gospel is good news and it's good news because God loves you and he loves you personally. But please know this, the type of love by which God loves us through Christ isn't an emotional, whimsical kind of love. It's a profound, deep love that is, yes, unconditional, it's radical, it's a kind of love that calls us towards who Christ is. But I want us to be clear, it defies the Western definition of love. The Western definition of love is this. It's emotional, it's based on some type of attraction, and if that runs dry, then I can cut bait and leave. I hate to tell you this. That's not the kind of love that the Bible speaks of, especially when we talk about Christ and the resurrection. Again, God's love in Christ is deep, it's personal, and it's all in. Now, with that said, we know that Jesus loves Lazarus. We know it. But there is a shocking verse that happens in the middle of our story that lets us know that there's something about the resurrection that we need to grab a hold of. And that verse is John 11.6. So after we've already read about Jesus loves Lazarus, John 11.6 tells us this. So when he, meaning Jesus, heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Wait, what? I thought Jesus loved Lazarus. I thought God's place in our lives is to run to us and to relieve all of our suffering. 
I thought God was there to relieve my suffering. That's what I thought he was there for. And by the way, if God really loves me, then he ought to make a move and relieve any suffering that I have in my life. But I want you to notice something. When it comes to the resurrection, Jesus waits two days. He waits. And when we think about that, we suddenly begin to recognize that maybe God views suffering differently than we do. Maybe there's something about suffering that God in his wisdom and his love wants to use in your life and in mine. And I don't say this flippantly, but I know there's a version of Christianity that teaches that God loves you and he's going to remove all the suffering from your life. He's going to swoop in. He'll be the knight in white shining armor. But when we get to the resurrection, Jesus wants you to know there's a truth you must know that is greater and more important than your suffering. So when we read that line, it's a showstopper. Wait a second, I thought he loved Lazarus. If he loved Lazarus, he should have got on the fastest camel he could find and get there to take care of Lazarus, and he doesn't. The text tells us that Jesus waited two days. He pushed the pause button. Maybe there's something about suffering that helps us to prioritize our lives in a way that the Gospels want us to. I'm well aware of the fact that many people have come to faith because of suffering. I know this. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis when we talk about suffering. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And what I've seen during COVID is similar to what I saw in the economic collapse around 08, 09, that people are beginning to look to God. Why? Because a lot of times we trust in things and when they begin to move under our feet and suddenly suffering seems like it's coming at us, suddenly we recognize maybe it's our own frailty, maybe it's our own insecurities. I'm not sure all what it is, but I noticed in 08 and 09 and during COVID, people are beginning to look to faith in a new and an exciting way. When I have thought about this COVID reality, and seen what's happened. I believe again that God's a God that works through suffering. But I also know God doesn't take it flippantly. God somehow, some way, though, in his wisdom has a way of stepping into our world in the midst of the suffering that we encounter. And he has a way of bringing Jesus into the middle of it. A lot of religions deny suffering a lot of religions say deny desire and all different things. But there's something about Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection that is truthful and it's honest 
and it speaks to how life really is. Again, Jesus waited two days. Then we pick up our reading again. And we pick up our reading in John chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Reading about Christ, it tells us this, that after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. You know, that thing that some of you are heading towards right now during this sermon. So then he told them plainly, you got to catch this. He says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. In other words, when the runners came to Jesus and said, Mary and Martha want you, man, get to Bethany, you need to get there. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, we're going to wait two days. And he does. And in that time, Lazarus has passed. Jesus says to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. Whatever he had took his life. And then verse 15 is stunning. And Jesus says, and for your sake, I was glad I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Can you imagine Jesus' disciples sitting there? And they're doing the mental math. The runner had showed up. Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, we're going to put it in neutral for two days. We're going to park it. And then now we're going to make our move because Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to go wake him up. What an outrageous thing to say. Lazarus is dead, but oh, by the way, disciples, that's actually a good thing because what you're getting ready to experience is going to help you to believe. But notice what Jesus says. Lazarus is dead, and Jesus says, I'm going to go and to wake him up. What an outrageous claim to make. Have you ever had someone in your life that tells you they're going to do something? And when they do it, it shocks you. Now, I was raised on a farm in Wisconsin. It was freezing cold. And I remember one of my brothers, and talking to him about the cold, we would talk about it often because when it's 20 below, what do you talk about? How cold it is, right? And I remember saying to one of my brothers, my brother said to me, he said, you know what? I'm going to live where it's warm. No matter what happens in life, I'm going to live where it's warm. Well, he never really seemed to make his move. And then when I was in college, all of a sudden, he kind of reached out to me and he said, guess what I'm doing? He said, I'm moving to California. Smart guy. So he moved to California and he's lived on a beach ever since. And he is three years older than me. But he did it. And I remember when he was actually doing it, I couldn't believe it. He's actually moving. He said something and he did it. Now, that one is kind of easy to do, right? But I remember a conversation I had when I was watching the Green Bay Packers lose to Tampa Bay. Talk about need for more prayer. But when the Green Bay Packers were losing to Tampa Bay and we lost that playoff game, 
I was there in the room, and a friend of mine and his wife, huge Packer fans, huge Packer fans. And when we were there, we were talking about football. And in talking about football, we began to talk about some experiences we had. And my friend Jeff, who, by the way, attends City Church, um, played for Lou Holtz in college. Jeff was a real top-flight football player, and he played for Lou Holtz. Had an incredible experience. But he tells the story where while he was playing football, a friend of his named Bill turned to him one day and the rest of the team and said, I'm going to coach in the NFL one day. And Jeff said, this guy wasn't the best player, but when he said it, everyone kind of took notice. Kind of laughed at it, thought, eh, that's kind of strange. But this guy said it to anyone who would listen. I'm going to coach in the NFL one day. That guy's name, by the way, is Bill Cower. Bill Cower coached the Pittsburgh Steelers for 15 years. You've probably seen him as a commentator if you've watched NFL games. Now let's talk about the Pittsburgh Steelers. This is important. The Green Bay Packers and the Steelers have played 35 times. The Packers have won 19 times and the Steelers have won 16 times. That's important for me to report. I'm going to gloss over the fact that the Packers have only won four Super Bowls and the Steelers have won six. They're the all-time Super Bowl leaders, but that's totally irrelevant to what I'm talking about at the moment. The idea here is, is that Bill looked at Jeff and said, I'm going to coach in the NFL, and he did it. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Lazarus, dead. I'm going to go wake him up, and I'm going to do this so that you will believe. Now, as we look at our story, we discover that Jesus says to his disciples something that is odd. Not only does he say he's going to go to Lazarus, but how does he term it? He says, I'm going to wake him up. What an odd way to talk about death. And what's fascinating is Jesus starts this in this story in John where he begins to talk about death as having fallen asleep. And all of the New Testament writers pick up on that. Almost always from then on, what do you hear in the New Testament? When someone dies, they're termed as having fallen asleep. Why? Because in Jesus, when you die, you fall asleep. But in Jesus, there's life after death. It's a fascinating, fascinating way to put it. But Jesus turns to his disciples and he brings into the biblical conversation, oh, guess what? Lazarus is dead, but I'm gonna wake him up. There's something about Jesus where he looks at death differently than anyone ever has before, that death is just sleeping. There will be a waking. And as we read our story, we discover how and why. Let's read on now a little bit more deeply into the Gospel of John. John eleven twenty 20 to 27 tells us this. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, remember the sisters have sent to Jesus, Lazarus is dead, we know you love him, get here quickly. Jesus waits two days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. 
Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus, what took you so long? If you'd have been here, my brother would have not died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, or Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. Ladies, what you need to know is this. A woman is the first one to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's key. Because in literature of this time, that should have been left out. But it's included. As a matter of fact, not only is Martha the first one to believe in the resurrection, from here on in all of the Gospels, it is women who are the most faithful to Jesus. It is women who follow him to the tomb. It is women who are outside of the tomb. It is women who stood with him at the cross when all the other men left. It was women. And the gospel celebrates that. Whereas in ancient literature of this time, the authors would have left it out. But here's Martha. <laughs> She's the first one that believes in the resurrection. She's the first one. But notice how Jesus says it to her. Jesus turns to Martha in the midst of her grief, in the midst of Lazarus having passed, in the midst of Jesus having waited two days, and he turns to Martha and he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He does not say, I have shown up to wake up your brother. What he says is, I am the resurrection, and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The reality of it is, is that when we talk about putting feet to your faith, this is where the story lands in front of me and in front of you before Jesus ever raises her brother from the dead, Jesus stands in front of her and says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now what does it mean when Jesus says, I am? Anyone who lived in the time of Jesus and, and was Jewish, the moment he said that, their head would have whipped up and said, what did he just say? Because in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. And I am is taken from the book of Exodus when Moses is leading the people out of bondage and captivity in Egypt towards the promised land and Moses comes to a burning bush and God speaks to him from the bush and Moses looks at this God and says, well, who are you? Who do I say you are? And God speaks to him and says this, my name is, I am that I am. And your footnote at the bottom of your Bible page says it can also be translated, I will be that I will be. 
In other words, Moses, wherever you go, you tell them that I am has sent you. And Jesus now stands in front of Martha and says, Martha, I am. It's the exact same wording. I am not just here to raise Lazarus from his sleep. Guess what, Martha? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And she responds by saying, I believe. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I want us to take a moment before we worship. And can we take a moment to close our eyes, but open up our hearts? What we see in this story is Jesus waits two days. Lazarus dies. But in that action, we begin to realize something. We begin to realize that Jesus, being the resurrection, is the ultimate truth we are called to stand in front of. That somehow, some way, this truth outweighs the suffering. That this truth is more important, it's greater than every other truth. And this truth is still bathed in love. Jesus stands before us and he declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, although they die, they will live. Do you believe this? My prayer is, is that all of us, as we move throughout this Easter sermon series, we would stand in front of the truth of Jesus and we would come to understand that the gospel is brought together in Jesus being the resurrection and the life. That's how God clearly demonstrates his love to us, that Christ is the resurrection. And the question is, do you believe this?